this episode, lecturer and artist Tiff Oban presents the first in a series of three talks, Searching for the Masters, Overlooked Makers, Objects and the Obscure, in a personal response to the Glyn Vivian collection, recorded in September 2014. Great halfway through. So as uh, Tom says, I'm Tiff Oban um, and I lecture in undergraduate and postgraduate um, art history, theory and criticism at the newly retitled University of South Wales. So I have a real passion for um, my subject, a real passion for art history. One of the best criticisms I've ever had was from a disgruntled student. Uh, it also was one of the best compliments I've ever been given. And they, uh, this student claimed that my um, lectures were too Marxist and too feminist, which I thought was brilliant. You know, it's just, it was the best compliment. I was really pleased. Uh, apart from the lecturer, I'm also an occasional curator, and I've worked with Kerry Thomas um, at the University of South Wales, University of Glamorgan, and he sort of taught me the basics of his style of curation. Um, when I was a student, um, and then I've got an absolute passion for art generally, you know, no matter where it's located, no matter where it's made, geographically or culturally or temp temporally. And so I'm also passionate about learning as well, and I sort of jumped at this chance when Tom offered me the opportunity to sort of engage with the collection. I just thought that was the most exciting thing, um, to become familiar with the Glyn Vivian collection. Uh, one of the best things about curating is when um, all the works come in, you know, you put out the call for submissions and you select the works and then they come in through the post office, bring them in. And it's the nearest I get as an adult to that excitement as a child at Christmas when you open your presents. It's absolutely amazing to sort of open up works and sort of hang them and things. So I, I love that. So um, I'm starting and ending, actually, with um, Gustave Dure and... Um, this work, Genius Kindled by Fame, and um, the fact that I came to sort of began to think about who is hidden in this collection. I thought, oh, what old masters, you know, have hidden this collection? What sort of terrible secrets is this collection hiding from us? And the, the term genius sort of links to that idea of old masters. Um, so starting with this, Genius Kindled by Fame by Gustave Dore, for what else is an old master? Um, commonly considered not the creation of a genius kindled by fame and um, uh, inspiration. Um, so I'm beginning with Doré, and I've selected two images by the French illustrator, painter and sculptor that coincide and quite succinctly illustrate the tone and possible bias of, this, of my first two talks. Um, by coincidence, as I say, it sort of just ended up that way and it all seemed to fit really well. I didn't know much about Dore to begin with, but he was prolific in his art making. Um, there's quite a few images in the Glyn Vivian collection by him, and uh, uh, Richard Glyn Vivian was um, actually a friend with the artist before his death in 1882. When they had the studio sale after his death, uh, Glyn Vivian bought quite a few of the works. So um, the work appealed for me not only for its narrative content, I really like narrative art, um, but also for the, his sort of rich and dark expressive style. It's sort of, I like that veering towards the grotesque and the fantastical um, in style and content. And it's sort of got this dark edge that I quite like and things, things like that always do appeal to me. Um, the work depicts, which you can't see on the big screen, there's a female form and her face is sort of hidden. You can just about see it glimpsing through the sort of head uh, covering and her body sort of swathed in this fabric. And she holds down at her side or holds back this male figure, smaller male figure, he's sort of on his knees and she's holding him down. And you can just about see here, which I didn't see at first, there's a dagger. 
So you're sort of wondering what's going on. The figures are the allegories of fame and genius. The genius perhaps is the artist who covets and desires fame, but obviously fame has its pitfalls. Fame can be dangerous. Um, Dory's, what I found out about him is he was actively seeking and desiring fame, apparently. Um, and so the work could almost be seen as this allegorical self-portrait. Um, however, in my research, I found out that um, online it says that this work has another name, which sort of contradicts this um, idea of um, fame kindling genius, and it's fa uh, genius killed by fame, which is quite interesting. It's sort of completely reversed. And then that's when I noticed the dagger, and I think, well, that's quite interesting. On the database, it's only known in the Blue Vivian as, as genius kindled by fame. Um, or stifled was the other word that came up. And so the title's more fitting with the narrative um, of the youth personifying genius and um, being stabbed in the heart by fame personified by a woman. And then I found this image, which obviously isn't in, isn't in the Glyn Vivian collection, but it's um, a sculpture, the um, one that we've got in the collection, uh, Genius Kindled or Stifled by Fame, um, hasn't got a date, uh, but this one has. So... La Glore, Glore of Glore, maybe, of 1878. Um, so the other work could have possibly, possibly been a study because it's the same sort of subject matter. Fame, Stifling Genius um, is the translation as well. So this was the second sculpture that Dore ever made, ever executed, and it occupied the place of honour at the Salon the year it was made. And within the sculpture, a youth personifying genius or glorious being stabbed in the heart by the woman who personifies treacherous fame. So the treachery is signalled by the dagger which is hidden in the laurels that she's sort of holding on his chest. And the message seems to be there's a an eternal and terrible truth and a price to be paid for the quest or the, um, you know, the uh, finding or, or the achievement of fame. But it's this title that's won me over with its direct reference to genius. I mean, that's why I chose it, really. Apart from the fact I liked it, it was this reference to genius. And when I'm lecturing in art history, there's four words that I absolutely demand I never use. And it's fame, it's master, famous. I think I'm going to forget one of them. But one of them is genius. And if anybody ever writes any of those, unless they do it critically, you know, saying this is not a term that we use anymore, then I scribble no very angrily and say, no, I told you week one, we're not using those words. So the fact that there is this title of genius and I'm looking for the old masters, it sort of ties together. Um, and then this discovery of the second title, which wasn't mentioned, as I said, on the Glyn Vivian database, sort of spun my talk into this new surprising direction, as I've explained. So genius kindled by fame, the Glyn Vivian title, refers to art history's ultimate accolade um, for the always male artists, you know, we look at when we study art history traditionally, we're looking at the geniuses of art history. We're looking at Leonardo and Michelangelo and various others going up to Picasso and Cezanne. And it's usually very heavily biased with males. And we, talk, we used to, not anymore, not in my class anyway, talk about them as these genius masters. Um, so a book that I always uh, demand my students buy and consume and start every definition and understanding of every art term is by the British Marxist art historian Jonathan Harris. It's called Art History, the Key Concepts, and it basically reads like a dictionary. It's A to Z of um, art concepts. Um, but it's quite a contrary dictionary because he never accepts the sort of... Uh, the normal definition of anything. He's always very critical of every assumption and every accepted understanding of every term there possibly is on the ideas of art. So, you know, basically he mistrusts everything that we think we know about art. 
that's why I try to get my students to do mistrust everything. Um, so he mistrusts the idea of genius because it, as he says, encapsulates the traditional art historical idea that the greatest artists have inborn instinctive abilities that are mysterious or at any rate hard to explain and possibly divinely inspired. So the genius is set apart from us ordinary mortals, although as we're all artists, I think, here, then perhaps we're all genius, and maybe it's the other ordinary mortals that we're set apart from. Um, for Harris, this is a tired cliche, um, and the real, in, uh, th you know, the real thing behind the bolstering of the status of art is the bolstering of the price of the work of art. You know, if it's by a genius, it sells for 150 million. If it's just by somebody normal, it's like 500 quid or something like that. So it's directly linked, you know, he's a Marxist, remember, directly linked to this idea of um, selling works. It all comes down to consumerism. But obviously Marxists aren't the only type of art historians who have a problem with genius. Uh, also feminist art historians, such as the American Linda Nochlin and the English art historian Griselda Pollock, identified the gender bias of the artist genius as well, you know, the idea that it's always a man, um, showing that art institutions that trained and accredited artists were dominated by men and prohibited women from entry and equal status. So historically, even when women were allowed into these institutions, they were barred from the life drawing. They weren't allowed to draw the dead bodies and the naked men and, and things like that. So it seriously hampered their ability to make the greatest sort of types of works of art, the history paintings. You know, if you're not adept or, or skilled, you don't develop the skills in life drawing, how are you going to draw or paint um, massive scale, multi-figured uh, art history paintings? You know, you're never going to compete with um, the majority of the artists unless you're sort of very lucky or maybe brought up by an artist father or something like that I and mean, obviously there are a few but the feminist artists really don't like you saying oh yeah but she did it and she was good because it sort of still judges those people by the same standards despite the fact that they were sort of barred from these these institutions so um, if women were barred from basic drawing lessons how were they supposed to compete with the, on the same level as their male counterpart and so it seems that it was not so much God that singled out the male artist as the divine genius um, and bestowed greatness upon him, but man himself, you know, singled out man over woman. Um, and as for Dory, going back to him, you know, keeps sort of going off, but coming back to the artworks all the way through, um, through his work, he's buying into this romantic idea of the divine genius artist, and he's bestowing the status on himself as well. So he's bestowing this, gene, this status of genius on, genius on himself, and um, that his genius will only inflame and develop and grow as his genius becomes recognised and famed, or that his natural creativity will be stifled by the demands that fame awards the great artist, maybe through too many commissions, you know, having too much to do, not being able to finish everything, depending on which title we actually go with. So this idea sets up the, um, today's talk. It's a search for hidden artist geniuses in the Glyn Vivian. That's what I started with with my first research. I was just sort of thinking of um, artist genius, you know, male artist genius, top names, who's in there, looking for Monet and Gainsborough and um, Constable and just seeing who I could find, who, who, who I could find in this sort of collection of works. And despite this, you know, I do really admire these artists. I do, don't dislike artists just because they're men, but... Uh, in fact, I like lots of artists, yeah, just what, whoever they are, whatever gender. Obviously, this conferred status must be taken with a pinch of salt, the, the status of genius, in recognition of the bias towards the examples I focus on purely because they're males. And you can already see from the start that I've latched on to narrative art, um, allegory, and a hint of classicism. And this is the type of art that I was again brought up on because my mum studying art history, dragging us around Europe, and going to Italy and Paris and... Um, 
looking at um, art galleries. So um, while my mum was dragging us around art galleries, I've got a real firm memory of arriving before Botticelli's birth of Venus when I was 10 years old in the Uffizi. And uh, I just sort of, vague, I sort of, I think there must have been crowds. I saw, it was either coming around the corner or crowds parted and there was Botticelli's birth of Venus and it was like an epiphany for me. I was absolutely, absolutely fell in love with it. I loved Botticelli as a kid. Quite like him now, but not as much. I was a really a sort of terrible daydreamer and I loved any form of religious story, any sort of form of mythological story. I was really into Greek myths as a child, so you know, it really spoke to me. And I loved narrative painting. Um, and I think primarily because it sort of, gave me these backdrops or ideas for which I could sort of have these imagination, imaginative journeys into the artworks, you know, sort of enter into them imaginatively. Um, and as an art artist, I sort of work on performance, I work on installation and participation art, that sort of um, form of art where um, you make the viewer basically do all the work, you know, and then they become the um, focus of the artwork. Um, which all seems very sort of conceptual and quite contemporary. But for me, it's just an extension of narrative art because I'm basically the installation, um, I'm creating the sets that I sort of dreamed of, sort of not really mythological sets, but it's still the sets that you can enter um, into imaginatively and become a part of the artwork. And as performers, you're sort of enacting these different um, personalities or, or characters and things like that. So, um, you know, enacting characters from stories. Um, and through participation, I'm offering the viewer a part in the narrative that I always dreamed of as a kid. You know, so it's sort of, often I make type of art, people go, that's not art, is it? But actually, for me, it's completely in this tradition of narrative art. Um, so from this perspective, um, you know, I see it as working in the tradition of, in the tradition of the sort of uh, mythological narrative art that I, I really liked as a kid. So, talking of mythological narrative art, I've um, got Thomas Stohart, um, Royal Academy artist, who I'd never heard of when I um, started researching. It's the very first image, Adam and Eve, in, um, in the collection, you know, so and it appealed to me because it's a narrative, it's biblical, it's sort of still mythological. He's a painter and member of the Royal Academy, as well as a prolific illustrator and engraver of narrative images from the Bible and Shakespeare and Chaucer and Greek and Roman mythology. You know, he primarily seemed to illustrate stories. Um, and then I also discovered, um, again through research, these two other pictures that sort of have an element of, of uh, the Glenvillian Adam and Eve pictures by the same artist and it's sort of um, either end of the narrative that the Glen Vivians won so this the one on the left is sort of when they're sort of happily in the Garden of Eden sort of not um, being embarrassed by their nakedness you know before they've eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and then the one on the right where they're being expelled so the Glen Vivian image seems to come in in the middle of those again the Glen Vivian one didn't have a date and I couldn't find dates or locations for these so it's sort of hard to work out where they were made within his career. But I did find this full text of a monograph online on, uh, on Stothart, and um, it listed that he, or it talk, talked about how he illustrated um, Adam and Eve's stories from Milton's Paradise Lost. So I imagine, you know, that that's why he's not making sort of, sort of religious imagery, but he's illustrating Milton's story. And he did this on several occasions. I think starting in 1792, he did illustrated this and ended in 1826. So we can sort of roughly locate these images somewhere within this period. Um, it's guesswork, obviously. Um, we need lots more research. We need um, lots of money at the Glyn Vivian to pay people to go and research lots of their works because there's so much in there. And um, there's quite a lot that 
really needs to have more looking into. There's lots of attributed to, and it'd be nice to actually work out if the work, these works, many of the works are actually by the artists or not. Um, but what is certain is that these two images are the before and after of the events in the narrative depicted by um, Stoha, you know, in the Glyn Vivian collection. Um, stylistically, there's some, there's sort of some similarities and some not. Uh, her Eve's sort of fig leaf skirt is sort of similar in both of these, and I think there's sort of similarity in the sort of complexions and the look about them. So it's hard, you know, it's guesswork at this point whether this was part of the same um, series or whether it's done at different times. I think this work could do with a clean, could do with a stint in the um, conservation studio and we'll be able to tell more from it. But what we can, we can sort of get a sense of the anguish that he feels. Um, it, you can see this in her dramatic gesture. Um, there's a shame and grief as she turns away from the unseen and angry, um, angry God, angry and disappointed God. Um, covering her face and Adam I think looking a bit like a young Marlon Brando possibly as in a stance that begs forgiveness of God um, but he's sort of also got a bit of a look on his face that says he doesn't think he's at fault he, you know he's so obviously uh, it's not as bad a gesture as this one this is um, totally blaming Eve by a uh, uh, 17th century Italian painter not in the Glyn Vivian collection but I just quite like this one and I just think you know it's so sort of and what this does, what these images of Adam and Eve and um, Eve causing the fall of man shows how ingrained and long-standing the divide between the genders actually is. Um, and so the two works, the one by Dory and the other by Stuttgart. First image of a woman is an allegory of time, destroying, killing, stifling the artist's genius and his creativity. And the second an image of Eve, moments after she ruined everything, you know, hope and contentment and comfort and unabashed nudity and caused man and herself. Um, to be banished into eternal hardship. So it's sort of by coincidence, because I like the narrative, because I like the style of the works, images of women who have ruined things for men. You know, little wonder, really, that women were barred from these art institutions. Um, the way she goes around wrecking stuff, you know, who can blame men, really? So what I did with my next one is I tried to break away from this, um, you know, getting all the hard-done-by attitude um, as a woman and look for something other, something not a narrative, you know, no ruinous woman to be seen. And I um, uh, focused on this one, Boucher by Boucher, Francois Boucher, attributed to. Um, and it's quite a sweet little picture, I thought. It's intimate size and it's sweet, oil on paper. You know, it's cupids connoting the sweeter side of our male-female um, divide or, or partnership, connoting love and desire. And I chose this because it's in a sad state and it's covered in brown varnish and it's got a big crack on it. Um, and it's in desperate need of a clean and maybe by sort of bringing it out to our attention, it might be noticed and you go into the conservation studio as well. Um, and it seemed like it could be a dear little picture, I thought. Um, and I primarily chose it, though, because I'm quite interested in Francois Boucher. He's very out of fashion. Um, he sort of seems to have become known as the pornographer of, to the pre-revolutionary French royalty. I, also, when I was researching, I was also rewriting, as I said, my um, lectures for first-year art history, which is basically a journey through art history from the 15th century to the 19th century. And um, I sort of focus on Boucher as a bit, and... Um, I read Arnold Hauser's The Social History of Art, written in 1951, and he really doesn't seem to like Boucher at all. He's the one who um, brings up the fact that um, 
Denis Diderot called him a pornographer and, and accused him of prosecuting his own wife because uh, his sort of painted his wife nude and things like that. So he's remembered really badly. He's remembered as being frivolous and a bit naff and a bit decadent, you know, a decadent artist to a decadent monarchy. So he's a little bit, um, you know, a little bit forgotten. But mostly, the thing he's mostly remembered for is this picture. And of course, this brings me back to the um, uh, a bias, male bias. It's um, a 14-year-old prostitute, Louise O'Murphy, um, also known as the blonde odalisk, which is sort of paired with the brunette odalisk, which is supposedly Boucher's wife. Um, she was the daughter, Louise O'Murphy was the daughter of an Irish soldier and a French mother. She was discovered by Casanova. Um, she was um, introduced to the king, French king, and became one of his courtesans for a few, few years. Her fatal mistake was in trying and failing to displace the king's number one mistress, um, this is not the female equivalent of the old master, you know, as mistress. This is um, the official chief mistress, as in sexual mistress, to Louis XV, Madame de Pompadour. And so um, Louisa Murphy, Mary Louisa Murphy was ousted and she really did become an old mistress in the true sense of the word. Um, but so but he's basically remembered for this sort of objectification and slightly dodgy, inappropriate picture, you know, by today's standards. Um, of a 14-year-old prostitute and she's ever remembered for this nude woman with her bum out in Boucher's painting. But how does this relate to um, the Cupids, I wonder? Um, it seems that a not, an innocuous little thing um, such as this painting, merely attributed to Boucher, is made complicit in the exploitation of the working classes and of children, of women, without too much labouring. Um, we see that any manifestation of culture, of visual culture, is steeped in these dominant ideals, these dominant ways in which the society is formed. So, you know, this male bias. Um, and that usually means that yeah, male bias is working class, white, European, Christian, so I say working class, middle class. You know, society is built up in the interests of that, that identity and um, works of art are sort of um, reflect that. This is the point when I was hoping to sort of veer off and talk about lovely works by um, John Constable in Gainsborough. I really like um, Constable's sky studies. But basically he was trying to sort of create um, realistic, naturalistic um, landscapes with naturalistic skies. And, and there's all, loads and loads of these um, cloud studies. And not only did I grow up in Gainsborough country, but I grew up in Constable country because they're sort of pretty um, close. So I was thinking, oh, it'd be nice to, um, you know, show some of these constables and some of the Gainsborough, because this is where I grew up. Um, and I wanted to discuss how um, I really hated Gainsborough when I was a kid, and I really loved John Constable. And now that's sort of changed around, and I find John Constable's work quite twee, usually. I really like cloud studies, but, you know, the Haywain and things, it's very chocolate box now when you look at it. And, uh, you know, it's not very exciting. And now when I look at Gainsborough, some of those um, portraits of ladies in their silk dresses, the way he's captured the dresses, it's always just like these really gestural brushstrokes, and it seems really exciting and not abstract, but definitely a step towards abstraction. So I've sort of completely changed my mind over who I like of my local artists. And I wanted to look at Monet, the Monet painting in the collection, because I think that's probably the star if we're talking about old masters. But then this sort of feminist leanings... Um, Sort of took me this way instead, Susanna and the Elders. Another um, attributed to by uh, Guido Rennie. This has caused me to sort of disregard all these um, gems in the collection and um, follow my feminist theme. 
It's another Old Testament narrative and tells the tale of a virtuous, beautiful Susanna who bathes in her garden. Um, as she bathes in her garden, she's approached by these um, elders who, lusting after her, threaten to accuse her of adultery if she doesn't commit adultery with them, basically. She refuses and is falsely accused by them, but her innocence is proven and prevents her from being stoned to death. So another lovely story. The Glyn Vivians is not the only painting by René... Uh, you know, of this narrative. There's one in the National Gallery, but, uh, you know, it's quite stylistically. And the way that he's um, depicted, actually depicted Susanna is very different. So, you know, it sort of leads me to think maybe it is a follower of René. You know, this, the, the National Gallery in London's one is very idealistically, Susanna's very idealistic. She's very beautiful and feminine and smoothly painted. Whereas the Guido Reni is, is sort of less that way. I think the National Gallery one is much more erotic as well, and this has a sort of subdued eroticism. It's still quite unsettling, but I think it's less erotic. Um, so it sort of seems to go against the tradition of painting. When I looked into this one, um, there's 130 different versions of Susanna and the Elders by various artists since the 1400s. You know, it's a, a key um, narrative that seems to be very popular with male artists, mostly male artists. Um, and that's just the ones that we know about, the ones that have survived. So, uh, and what I saw this as is a, is a thinly veiled excuse to um, paint an image of heterosexual male fantasy and desire. It's an excuse for voyeurism, you know, not that you need much of an excuse. Um, the female nude became one of the major subjects in European art since artists wrestled control away from the church. They used to be um, patronised, commissioned by the church to paint biblical narratives. And then during the Renaissance, you know, they developed, they sort of, um, as the middle classes grew wealthier through trade and started to commission artists themselves, they were less interested in biblical narratives and started to ask for things that they were more interested in, um, portraits and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, views of towns and domestic uh, uh, sort of scenes. Artists at this time also developed skills as well. But what they seem to do with this newfound freedom is begin to paint pictures of nude women and pictures of sort of voyeuristic uh, pictures of women's bodies. So um, the female nude as becomes this um, key subject within art as artists sort of develop the freedom to paint the subjects that they want. So painted by male artists for male viewers. Um, but the narrative of Susan and the Elder, Susanna and the Elder, sort of implicates the male viewer. Male viewers are always considered in the history of art. The artist is male, the viewer is male. It sort of implicates the viewer in the Elder's wrongdoing. And we as viewers, you know, we know better whether we're male or female, we're all implicated. We become like the voyeuristic Elder. And we're with them and one of them and we're ogling the female flesh while comfortably claiming it's okay because it's art. There's one artist, uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, who paints it with a feeling, obviously as a woman artist, she maybe paints it from Susanna's um, point of view, you know, so you can get a sense of how awful it must have been. It's a story, but, you know, the experience of being um, harassed by a couple of blokes as you're trying to have a bath in your garden. Um, but mostly the images are... Um, you know, painted by men, and it is an excuse for voyeurism. So the history of Western art and history of painting since the 1400s, since artists wrestled control of what they painted from the church, seems in part to be a history of um, voyeurism, in which the traditionally male painter looks at the traditionally female, often unclothed female subject. Um, this is a theory suggested by John Berger, who wrote the series in the book Ways of Seeing in the 1970s. 
you know, it's a book that I sort of use in my lectures quite a lot. And for John Berger, men look, women are looked at, and in being looked at, women become an object. And as Berger states, she becomes, and most particularly, an object of vision, of sight. So for women, women is this object. She has a sense of looked atness about her, and men are the sort of subjects that look. So if you're an object, you can't be a subject. You can't be an individual with feelings. You can't be an individual with thoughts and desires. And the objectification of women forms part of the basis for the tradition of the visual, visual culture in Europe um, and arguably continues today in magazines and films and television and music videos and such like. And art demonstrates this as I've shown, um, you know, in this selection of the Midland Living Collection. And yeah, you know, despite this, I do love all these paintings. I seem to be being critical of them, but I, you know, I really like them as well. So um, I just sort of have this... Um, thing in me that makes me sort of go on a feminist rant, you know, I didn't mean to have this talk to be like this at all. And so that's perhaps the fact that I actually love them, maybe I'm a failed feminist or a hypocrite or something. Evan Walters, another sort of big collection of his works in the Glyn Vivian collection, I really like a lot of these and I love this work as well. Before I sort of come back to Doré and my final work, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's another vision of voyeurism, it's a woman in the privacy of her own home, it's an intimate, intimacy of her own home, privately reading a book, and here's the artist sort of peering through doorways and sort of looking at her, objectifying her. Yeah, I think I've got a thing, I think I quite like voyeuristic images as well, so, um, and especially ones that seem to catch the object of voyeurism unawares, as Anne um, Waters does here as well. Um, although, of course, obviously that voyeurism is a fiction because this is a model and he's asked her to sit there and she sat there until she got bored to death and she probably stopped reading and, you know, all that sort of thing and got really achy. So it's, it's a pretense, an illusion of voyeurism. And then I sort of linked this. I just thought I'd do a quick genealogy and, and sort of show some of the other artists, you know, that I really like. Again, not in the collection. I wish they were in the collection, but it's sort of, it's around the same sort of time. Also, I haven't got, it's Edward Hopper, you know, that sort of, viewing somebody in a room in, in an interior in passing and sort of having this glimpse into a private moment this is on um, the hotel room from 1931 so and um, Walters one was from 1938 um, you know so there, there's a slight similarity and Wilhelm Hammershaw who I absolutely love he's my current favorite that's why I want to go to Copenhagen um, I don't know how I haven't discovered him at all before but it's all of the they're all these muted colours, they're all painted within his home, uh, views through doorways and hallways, and he paints his wife from the back constantly, so she's always faced you know, with her back to him, which I find really intriguing and quite strange, but yeah, I really like him. So again, you know, I've sort of related that to Evan Walters. Um, the um, Copenhagen Museum, I think, was offered all of his work on his death, and they refused, you know, and now they really regret it, so... Um, uh, and then going back to Peter de Hook and Johan Vermeer, you know, again, sort of these views into domestic views from one room into another. But what all of these images show, you know, it sort of backs up this sort of slight argument that I briefly tried to outline that um, there is a direct genealogy, um, there is this tradition of voyeurism. Art is almost a, a history of voyeurism, um, which allows the viewer to view unobserved the intimate privacy of the domestic realm ascribed to women um, and this is sort of similar to Susanna and the Elders you know that's her uh, she's having an intimate private time in the bath and there's these um, sort of making it very real this sort of voyeurism by actually having the two elders there harassing her what should be a private act in a traditionally 
feminine space um, becomes an exhibition, it's an act of exhibitionism for the female, an act of voyeurism for the male viewer. Um, and so I've ended it with this one, it's sort of um, uh, Judith, the head of Holofernes. This is another of my, I really, really bizarrely like this um, biblical narrative as well and sort of come back to this quite a lot. So like Susanna, Judith has been painted by just about everybody, you know, since the 14, 1400s from Cranach the Elder to Gentileschi and Caravaggio and Klimt um, and in the Glyn Vivian version uh, by Dore we focus not on the act of decapitating the um, Assyrian general Holofernes but on the um, moment when Judith triumphantly shows the oppressor's head to the people indicating the delivery of Israel from the Assyrian army. Um, and so another woman, Judith, um, messes up another man's plans like Eve and um, uh, oh God, who was the other person? Oh yeah, um, fame. But this time he's the enemy and so she's the heroine and her actions are approved. Um, possibly because it's an atypical um, feminine behaviour, unlike disobedient Eve and unlike jealous fame, in times of need Judith acts like a man and, and she, she gets away with it, you know, she's always allowed to, it's, it's extreme times. So the story goes that Judith, a beautiful widow, is called upon by her fellow townspeople to save them from the general and his army. The plan is she tempts him with her beauty, gets him drunk and then does away with him. And I'm not sure why they chose her. Um, as a widow, she inhabits a liminal identity, an identity that's not the norm. So she's almost free, she's outside rule, she's outside control. Um, she's got no husband, no brother, no father telling her what to do. Um, so she's got this as a liminal identity in this, you know, she's got the potential to be dangerous, to break rules, to threaten, um, and so overcomes, um, you know, she's capable of anything basically. So that sort of works with her um, identity as a widow. Um, she's also got sexual experience as a wife, and so there's no threat to her virtue, and she can make use of that sexual experience in order to um, tempt Holofernes. You know, she can use her feminine, feminine wiles to achieve her goal. Um, it's the very feminine wiles used by Eve to tempt Adam to take a bite of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, um, and wiles that are not only sinful, but the cause of the original sin, but it was okay for Judith, it worked for her. Um, I've got sort of Caravaggio's and Artemis Gentileschi's um, images with um, Caravaggio, it's not quite believable, she's a little bit delicate, she's not quite putting enough effort into the act of, um, you know, but Artemis Gentileschi's one is far more, you know, it's far more power in it and it's, it's much more believable, so um, it's a more plausible model, a vision of strength than um, capability, I think, so. And in Dory's image again, we've got Judith in her post-moment of the bloody triumph, holding the head aloft of the defeated enemy, delivering her people. And what I really like about this work, apart from the narrative and the style, is the, um, it sort of completely inverts everything that art is about, um, or so I argue. Um, so the traditionally passive, tradi traditionally objectified female of art is captured in the act of showing the viewer to himself, basically. The viewer is um, symbolized by the head of Holofernes, and she's basically got the head and directs it back to the viewer. He's, you know, showing, it, showing himself to himself. Um, as Judith lifts the head of the enemy, it's also the head of the subject, the male viewer, would identify with it, you know, if it was an image of Holofernes as the strong Syrian general, the male view would identify with that as an authority figure. Um, and here, it's almost like a Medusa head. Um, Judith lifts Holofernes' head. She raises it, and it almost petrifies the male viewer. It stops him short in horror. 
in a sort of castrative effect. Um, I'm wading into Freudian territory here. It's a bit late in the day to stop going to Freud, I think. Not the best idea. But, you know, it's a powerfully arresting, for me, it's a powerfully arresting and unsettling image. Um, it unsettles in the horrifically bloody detail of Judas' violent act, and it unsettles the, um, the art historical tradition. Woman here is active, she's the subject, she's taking up the traditional male position in art, and man is reduced to this object, the head, um, he crucially becomes an unseeing, inactive thing, and that's traditionally woman's um, you know, role in art, the unseeing, inactive thing to be looked at. Um, and so, um, basically, the male object, subject of this, is, has developed a sense of looked-atness, which is traditionally the female position. Um, and this is what sort of excites me about contemporary art history, as I said, applying your own worldview and your own biases to works of art and interpreting them from a interpreting them from a personal perspective, regardless of what the artist intended. You know, so um, we're allowed to do that these days, um, following the advent of postmodernism and the death of the artist, as I mentioned. Because I doubt very much that Doreen thought of any of this stuff in the same way that Walters didn't think of any of the stuff that I said. He's more likely illustrating a really good story, a good biblical narrative, a really gory biblical narrative. Um, and so I'm going to bring this back to my own art. Well, this is what I attempt to do in my own art. I attempt to return the gaze or effect a reversal of the gaze, reflect it back on the viewer um, so that they become the focus of the art. You know, that my work is mostly about the viewer and what they do within the in, in installation or the performance or the participatory event. Um, and I like to undermine that tradition and, and convention of art. So Dory's image for me is symbolic of that subversive act. And, um, you know, I subvert the traditional understanding of the narrative of Judith and I make it a narrative that inverts tradition, inverts the identities associated with art and inverts the power dynamics that feminist art history is identified between the viewer and the object of art and the artist, in which man is active, seeing subject, woman is inactive, seeing object. Um, you know, and as in my identity as an artist, as a woman, I'm already wrong because I'm a woman. Traditionally, obviously, I'm talking about because things have changed. Um, I'm inverting or subverting that tradition of the male genius and the master of art. As a woman, I should have been the passive object of art, but I invert this tradition by becoming the subjective, as in thinking individual, active artist. Um, and the viewer is by tradition male, as I've said, whether male or female, the viewer is always seeing, according to John Berger, from a male perspective. Um, they, we can only look from a male perspective, we can only judge from a male perspective. Um, so the viewer in, inhabits an active position of power that ferociously consumes and possesses through looking. So it sort of turns that around. So Doris Judith, and me invert, um, stroke, subvert the power relation of the active male viewer, the passive female object, by reflecting the gaze back upon the viewer. Um, and so through voyeuristic photography, performance, immersion in installation, encounter with situation or event, I reflect the focus back on the viewer. Um, and, uh, and what they do in response to the work of art becomes the focus of the art. Um, so whilst Doris Judith, through her heroic act, becomes the powerful, threatening, phallic woman of every man's Freudian nightmare, um, and that's sort of basically why she's one of my favourite subjects of art, and why Doris' head, um, Judith with head of Holofernes, is one of, for me, it's one of the masterpieces of the Glyndivian collection. It's definitely one of the favourite works that I saw. 
um, and I use the word masterpiece, sort of inverted commas, but I do think it's amazing. You know, just don't tell my students that I use that word. Um, so that's it, sort of a personal journey through uh, what I've discovered in the Glyn Vivian um, collection. And um, next month I'm going to just sort of focus on the old mistresses, and I'm going to focus on the old mistresses in both senses of the term um, in the Glyn Vivian collection, and why the, old, the term old mistresses doesn't work, you know, so it's that sort of bias that's inherent even in language, where an old mistress doesn't mean the same thing as an old master, so hopefully maybe you'll come back and see that. That's it. Thank you.